Welcome, everybody, to another episode of David Burkus Presents, the world's worst title for a podcast and video interview series. But really, I just want to present lots of my friends, lots of people that are thinkers and influencers, thought leaders, and also thought doers, if that's a thing, people working to actually change organizations and make them better. Uh, and today, I've got exactly one of those people, um, my good friend, Martin Lindstrom, one of these... Um, I have a I have a soft spot for for people who are weird, Martin. And you and I you and I are quite weird. You're, yours going all the way back to some early obsessions with Legos, um, but but in that in that weirdness, you notice things about organizations, and you ask, you know, why do things have to be a certain way? And and you've done exactly that with a fantastic new book that I was privileged to read. I mean, months ago, and it's it's fantastic. The Ministry of Common Sense. Which really um, it takes a takes an aim at bureaucracy, at red tape, but offers more than that. Offers a, a sort of solution. So I want to get into where we are now, how we fix it, uh, etc. But Martin, thank you so much for coming on the show. We have so much to talk about. Thank you, David. And it is now I've never been called a thought doer before. That's new label. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, so I always had a problem with that whole idea of like those who can't do teach because the reality is like those who did it really, really well and got tired of it are the ones that tend to to teach, right? So um, so yeah, that would make that would make thought thought doer. And and again, you know, somebody somebody who is, I mean, I remember before BC, before Corona, um, there was a lot more to Martin Lindstrom than just sitting in an ivory tower in his office somewhere thinking up these grandiose thoughts about how organizations should be in theory. You were, what was it, 280 days a year on the road? You're, the most common hotel for you was an airplane seat, right? It was crazy. It was crazy. And then it, the whole world stopped. Yet bureaucracy continued for some reason. And that's really <laughs> what I'm focusing <laughs> on here, right? You know, what, what, what I've spend a lot of time over, over the last 10 years to do is to understand the concept of, of bureaucracy because here, here's the case. If you really want to change organizations, if you want to infuse innovation and creativity into an organization, you need to understand what I define as the immune system. And the immune system is what I define as the defense mechanism for change. And a lot of the stuff we do every day is all about protecting ourselves. And one thing I've noticed is with bureaucracies, the larger corporation, uh, the older it is, the more reporting layers you have, there's a direct correlation with that and uh, what I call nonsense and bureaucracy. So, And, and it, it gets worse and worse with those screens we have now because there is no longer what I call a water cooler moment or before the meeting break or just after or that guy was an idiot. What's your thinking about that? That doesn't exist anymore. So there is no alignment. So everything has become black and white. So bureaucracy, in my opinion, has become even worse. And the scary part about this is really that this pipeline of bureaucracy is now going straight into our bedrooms, which are really destroying people's private life as well, right? Yeah, well, so I don't know that I, I have that problem, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, I got this I got this Christmas gift a while back, which was <laughs> my yeah. phone with a solid. This was from you know from you. You were singing these these praises and these ideas early and often. I I was saying the same thing. That's why I loved this little Christmas card so much that I kept it. The line I always used is that if you have a smartphone, if you take uh, a, if you have a work smartphone, you've got work email on it, etc you take your work home with you every single night. That used yeah. to be an indicator that you were overworked. Like that used to be the sign, 
right? Are you packing papers into your briefcase and bringing them home with you? That's a bad thing. Now we do it all the time, right? And of course, because of Corona and the response and all of that, I mean, now we're sort of living at work even more so. But yeah, it, it creates a, a, a lot of, of friction. And I, I think it it means that we need to handle this ridiculousness like bureaucracy all, all the more, right? This well, is a problem that's all the more salient. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, my my story really on this topic began when I was on a on a holiday each type of work holiday with, where I met up with Malcolm Gladwell and we were sitting at the savannah, looking at the zebras and the giraffes and Malcolm asked me this question: Why do people not wear hats here? Uh, or why do they wear hats here? How come we stop using hats in the Western world? And you know, it's Malcolm Gladwell question. You don't just throw out some stupid answers. So I was thinking about that for about a year. I'm a bit slow. Um, and, and realized that in 1961, exactly a day ago at J.F. Kennedy's inauguration, uh, J.F. Kennedy was the first president in the history of the United States not to wear a hat. And you may say, well, so what? Big deal. Um, well, actually, yes, big deal. Because the fact is that it was the first time private and work was completely merged. And as that merged, it meant that, you know, in the old days, I assumed you would take on a hat and you would be in a work mode and you'll go back and take it off. You'll be in private mode. And then later on, the tie disappeared. And then later on again, uh, of course, we installed, as you say, rightly so, a an office in our pocket called the smartphone. And now the last push into to death is literally that we now have this screen installed in our bedrooms. And if we do not take that serious, we really will break down because there's no way our brains can handle that. And we know that from all sorts of neuroscience, we need to defragment our lives. We need to separate and compartmentalize things so we can handle stress. If it becomes one big blur, you start to be stressed and you feel anxiety. And I would claim you know, 70 to 80% of people, the workforce working behind screens today, feel that way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I have long um, talked about the importance of things like um, changing devices when you change modes. It's, it's my after work ritual. I think it's in under new management. It's also in my yeah. new one in leading from yeah. anywhere that I yeah. have. And I, I would show you both of them, but I can't. So I have my smartphone, which is the work device. I work out of my home most of the time, but I still have a different device when I'm on a different floor of the house. I come out from work. I go upstairs. I go to our charging station and I switch the devices, right? I still can't do the whole never having a screen when I'm not at work thing. But the other device, the tablet, is personal social media. It's uh, Netflix and Disney Plus and Kindle. And that's that's it, right? There's nothing work-related on it. So, you know, I could always move back to the charging station. But that little bit of friction is sort of my new version of taking your hat off, right? It, or, or putting it yeah. on. It's my yeah. new way to sort of signal what mode that I'm in. But a lot of people... Yeah really haven't done that. And now I think it's even more important to develop some sort of ritual like that. Well, there's another dimension to this, which, which I'll encourage everyone watching and listening here. Uh, and that is certainly what I've realized working with innovation and creativity for some time is that my most creative moments I realized was when I started to map down my time and how I used it and where my curve was of creativity was when I was away from the screen. Screen-based time is in general not encouraging um, creativity because it's a linear format. It spoons fit you with things. And I realized that the first time when I started to get Lego online back in 1994, 
Um, and where I was playing around with kids to understand how do I get them on the screen and how do I get them back from the screen? And I could not get kids away from the screen. Once they're stuck to the screen, I could not get them back to play with Legos. Um, and that's where I realized that screen-based technology in general are killing creativity. So one of the things I'm doing, David, is really to separate my time. I spend 50% of my time in front of Zoom and whatever it is. And 50% of the time is off a screen where I really, um, you could say, defragment my life or I look at things from a different point of view or I connect to ordinary things in a new way. And that has helped me to thrive through this. But I tell you, if you don't do that, if it's back to back for eight or 10 hours and then you throw yourself at the couch and at 10 p.m. you start to do your work preparing for tomorrow, well, then you will slowly die from inside out. Hmm. Yeah, I, and I think you know, one of the things that's going to kill you slowly from inside out, right, is exactly the subject of the new book, is the bureaucracy, is the red tape, yeah. is, is all of this. I love your take on how we got here, right? Besides the fact that organizations are just bigger and more global, et cetera. I, I mean, I always attribute it to what I used to call policy creep, right? Which is where one person does something a little weird or unethical or wrong. And so we create a policy to make sure that never happens again. And then in the end, we end up sort of demotivating the 99% of people who would be fine without that policy, right? I think it was Reed Hastings at Netflix that always used to joke, we don't have a clothing policy, but no one shows up to work naked. Is, is that, I mean, you did a ton of research on kind of how we got here. I feel like it's probably more elaborate than policy creep, um, although that may still be one of the enemies. Well, I think, I think one of the deeper aspects of this is what I define as, as empathy, and, and let me just pause here for a second and talk about common sense first, because that's the product. It's the result of all these problems. You know, the more we are muttering the water, the more um, we are more thinking about my point of view, the more lack of common sense we have. So the opposite is nonsense. And the worst thing happening is really empathy. Empathy, I define as the capacity to understand um, or feel what another person is experiencing from within their frame of reference. And this is important because it's a capacity to place oneself in another person's um, position. And the reason why I'm babbling on here with this part of theory is because empathy is really the essence of acknowledging that you actually should care about other divisions, other people, other functions, and most importantly, the customer. Now, we have become so obsessed with ourselves. We are so happy for ourselves at the moment. We are living in this social media bubble, which is self-enforcing for all the information I send out. I'm just a star all the time. So what has happened is that empathy has gone on a free fall. And in fact, I would claim it's right now at an existential a crisis level. And so the result of this is that with empathy, the side product becomes the lack of common sense. Because if you don't care about another person's point of view, why would I care about common sense? Because remember, the word common means from other point of view, right? Mm. Um, so what's really fascinating, let, let me just show you a little graph here, which I think is indicating this very well. Now, on this graph, I have shoot on the top and I have shoot on the bottom, and then I have do and, and don't. And what you will see here is that if I take a, a small startup, for example, and focus on that, you will see that that particular startup will be almost the opposite of a bureaucracy. 
in the bottom I have a big company there's a lot of bureaucracy they've been around forever and they have a lot of reporting layers so you will see the degree of nonsense things you shouldn't do and things you don't do it is pretty dramatic if I on the other hand take a um, a startup you will see it looks like this there's a lot of common sense because it should and it's due and the way for me to illustrate that is if I should talk about some founders like the founders of Snapchat who literally had this experience with smoking weed in a dorm room. And guess what? They had this horrible experience of a guy taking a photo of them, went hmm. online, mom freaked out, not very good. And he said, I wish I could retract that photo. And that became a $50 billion company. Now, that was a sense of empathy. He felt the pain himself. That became the purpose of this company. And that infused itself through the entire growth of the company. And as a company grows older, what happens is the founders move to the right. Think about Google. And suddenly we have the lawyers coming in. They're being sued left, right, and center. And on top of that, of course, there's a lot of new people coming in. And suddenly that base philosophy is gone. And that's where we move from the common sense on the top to, of course, the nonsense in the bottom. And that's really what we have to try avoiding because you almost have to create an artificial way of keeping that empathy alive. And if you don't do that, you'll end up down at the nonsense area. And it's not particularly fun to be down there because that's where frustrations, that's where culture is collapsing, and that's where people break down with anxiety and stress. So... um <laughs> I've actually never heard the Snapchat story. I think that's awesome. I mean, I, I, I never heard it until you pointed it out to me. But um, I think there's other stories, too. I mean, there's there's a lot of stories of leaders doing that, right? You talk about in the U.S., um, Herb Kelleher and Southwest Airlines, and how Herb would regularly take his own flights and and sort of be that, I don't know, secret shopper, undercover sort of CEO thing. But those are not common, right? Those empathy missions are not all that common. So what do we do? Why are they not coming? That That's the issue I have. I remember many years ago, I, I met up with the founder and the owner of IKEA, Ingvard Kambran, in Sweden. And, and I went to his office and I asked him, where, where is he? He was not there. And they said, well, he's at his usual place. And I said, where's that? Well, that is, that is down at the cash register. And sure enough, I went down to the cash register. And then this old man was sitting there checking everyone out. And I remember I asked him during the break, why do you do this? And he said, because I wanted to look everyone in the eyes and see what they're feeling and hear what they're thinking. And that is the reason why IKEA is what it is today, he said to me. Now, time after time, the most prominent companies I ever met on planet Earth, if the founder is still there and keeps that mission alive, the company thrives. As soon as they lose that feeling with, the empathy feeling with the consumer, customer, or passenger, or patient, then it starts to collapse. So you need to artificially build it into the organization. And if you don't do that, you will be like the frog in this boiling pot of water. The only problem is it's slowly heating, and you'll stay in that pot of water and die. So, I mean, I guess that's my question, right? How, how do we how do we do that? I, I think there's a lot of things, uh, sense of mission and purpose and other things that sort of fall apart when the founder kind of finally departs. And, you know, as as much as we might say about the principal agent problem and stock options, uh, that's clearly not helping, right? It's not helping senior leadership feel like owners, but it's not just senior leadership, right? It, it's There are a number of roles in a large organization that don't get connected to the customer 
every day. How, how do we do that? How do we start turning this around and bringing back that empathy that leads to common sense so we don't have to rely on all these nonsense red tape policies? Well, in, in my opinion, what you do is that you, um, you, you install what I call an express elevator in your company. So think about this. Typically, what I do is I talk to senior management if I have access to them. And I say to them, hey, I would love you to give me a mandate. I, I won't abuse it, but just give me an, a, a mandate for a moment for me to make a change in the organization. Then I'll take the express elevator and go straight down to the ground level, to the receptionist, to the uh, people at the ground floor, the front line, the, the warehouse folks. And I find out where there's a friction. And there's a lot of frictions happening, the most ridiculous frictions quite often. And they've tried to fight for it, to change it. It's been really hard for them to do it. And they never succeeded. And I'm saying to them, hey, let's brainstorm on this together and come up with a great idea of fixing it. Now, they are deeply skeptical, deeply skeptical. So anyway, we come up with an idea. And at that stage, I say to them, hey, just hang on for a second. And without them knowing it, quite often, I jump into my express elevator, go straight up to the top and say, hey, Mr. Smith down there, he has a great idea. Um, I assume it's okay. I'm going ahead with it. I take my express elevator back again. And then I say to Mr. Smith, hey, I love your dad. Let's do it. And Mr. Smith at that stage will look at me and he'll say, what? And, and won't really believe it. So we implement it. And once we implement it and it's a, success, a very big success, I amplify it through a celebration. That celebration becomes so prominent that people say, my gosh, what's happening here? I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't expect that to happen. And suddenly you have a movement happening. And that starts from bottom up. Every big movement on planet Earth did not happen from top down. It happened from bottom up. Think about Martin Luther King. Think about Gandhi. Think about all of those. Mother Teresa. All those folks had one thing in common. They took one step at a time. And in my opinion, I remove one friction at a time. Mm, I love I love that. I used to... It used to be one of the big things in uh, that I would talk about in under new management, which is that I don't know which of all of these crazy policies based on trust and autonomy are supposedly working for your specific organization. But I know the one thing, which is figure out what's blocking your people from doing their best work and seek to remove it. I, I guess I'd ask you a, a spin side of that question, though. OK, so I love this idea of the express elevator um, and I love the idea that you figured out how to serve in that role. What if I'm sort of that middle manager in the company? I don't have an express elevator. I see the friction, but I'm not connected to it every day. Like if I'm reading the Ministry of Common Sense and everybody watching this and listening to this should, um, what do I do if I don't have senior leadership buy-in? I just have my team. How do I create kind of a pocket of common sense on just my team? You go underground. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you a true story. So... A couple of years ago, um, this pharma company, a client of ours, uh, approached me and asked me what they could do in order to get a, a stronger relationship with their patients. And I said to them, hey, when did you last spend time with the patients? And guess what? The answer was never. So I said, you must be kidding. So I said, why? They said, well, compliance will not allow it. BS. I said, we went to compliance. We persuaded these guys to change their mind. We went into homes of patients. And this was at, at the mid-level uh, in, in the organization. So we get into this home of, of a 20-year-old uh, young lady and she um, has asthma. And I ask her this very, very you know, emotional question, which is, how did you feel having asthma as a child? And this young lady starts to cry and it's very emotional, I have to say. And she says, listen, I was teaching in school. I had no friends. 
Um, in fact, they never invited me to parties because they said I was a disgrace for human mankind. Okay, can you imagine that? Uh, so I said, listen, it seems like you have recovered a lot. What changed? And she opens up her handbags and she put out a straw. And she said, this is my secret. And she says, whenever I meet new friends or, or colleagues, I always give them a straw first and ask them to breathe through the straw, holding mm -hmm. themselves for the nose. And as they do this, what happens is that they actually are transporting a sense of empathy from me to them and back again. And that's my secret. And I took that idea, stole it, I admit it, and um, tried the same with the senior management. Same setup. And after a minute or so, they spit up the straw. And one guy said to me, hey, this is ridiculous. No one can live like this. And I said, exactly. No one can live like this. But this is how every one of your patients live every minute of their lives. And that was really where you could feel a penny drop on the floor. And uh, and the reason why I'm telling you this is because when you do transformation where you don't have a Martin Lindstrom or a David Berkus or anyone else uh, like us involved, what you should do is to transport a sense of empathy. And you do that by doing things where you put yourself in the shoes of the customer. A good example is, is um, some of the work I did for Saga. Now, you would never have heard about Saga, but if you're British, you would, because it's one of the largest insurance company for people above the age of 50. And they have these big cruise ships. They have three of them. And they were really, really happy because they just renovated one of them. And most people going on these cruise ships back then would wear on 70, 80, 90 years old, so pretty senior folks. And um, they asked me what my opinion was. So I went aboard on one of the cruise ships, and it was horrible. It, it clearly was designed by a person in the, late, in the young 30s, 20s. So instead of me trying to convince these people, which I tried, I invited them down to the pier at the harbor. And I rented five spacesuits. Space and I tell you, it was really difficult to get hold of them. But one of those you have when you go on the moon, uh, literally. And very heavy, uh, big glasses, big thumbs with gloves on, aluminum in the feet so you're not going in gravity. Um, I mean, that was a serious deal. And I asked all of them to put it on. And, of course, they thought at that stage this is the most ridiculous thing they ever tried. So they walk up the rank into this, this big cruise ship. And uh, then I'm saying we're checking in now. And then I left. And then they stood there and they couldn't do anything. The one guy tried to go into the elevator and he couldn't even press the elevator button because his fingers were too big. Another guy tried to walk up the staircase and was stuck halfway and had to shout down, can you help me to get me down? I'm not kidding. This was the whole senior management of this company stopped there. And after two hours, <clears throat> they were still standing there. So I, I went down to them and I said, hey, so what happened here? And they said, this is ridiculous. I said, no, that is how your customers feel, your guests feel. And that really turned things around just like the pharma company. And that's what I would recommend people to do. You cannot persuade people with numbers because you don't have the numbers. But what you can do is to build an under-the-radar case where emotions are driving it. It leads to a movement. And once you have the movement and you have some results kind of affirming that this is the right thing, you build a case, you celebrate the hell out of it, and then you send it up as a you know, balloon of hope throughout the organization. And that's where you have the movement running. And suddenly the domino bricks are just turning all one by one. Oh, I love that. I think those are the, between the straw 
in the spacesuit, one of which is much easier to get a hold of than the other. Um, <laughs> I, I love that idea. I mean, it, it really, it really, the, the pair of those two stories really sends the message that there is not an excuse for trying to do something to gain empathy for the customers that you serve, even internal customers, trying to go through the processes and procedures that they have to go through to understand really the cost of this red tape and this bureaucracy. Em empathy is that answer because it leads to common sense. If you, I guess if you want, if you're watching this or listening to this, you want more of those answers, you should obviously check out the new book, The Ministry of Common Sense. It's fantastic. It's a beautifully designed cover too. Um, and it's got some great names on it, endorsing the book. I don't know how <laughs> I got it. Who the, is on this back of the book? Yeah, geez, geez. Mm, mm, there's geez. a guy called David. <laughs> Wonderful that is. Anyway, so if, if you are, if you're watching or, or listening to this after the fact, we'll have a link right below it or in the show notes, where, wherever you are, we'll have a link to that. Martin, how else can people get a hold of you either because they want to take advantage of the Martin Lindstrom Express Elevator or even just learn more about how empathy leads to that common sense? How can people get a hold of you? Well, listen, you can find me uh, everywhere. So that means Twitter, hashtag Martin Lindstrom, of course, uh, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Instagram. And um, if you want to change things in your organization, of course, my hope is not only that you're buying a book for yourself, but you are giving a book to your boss. And in fact, what I've done on my website, martinlindstrom.com, is to do a deal where you can give a secret book to your boss with a funny postcard, which is saying, hint, hint, or wink, wink, or I'm sick and tired of PowerPoint, or whatever it says, show me the size of your deck, that type of thing, and you can send it to your boss. So um, so here we go. Hopefully, do you know what, David? The reason why I wrote this book, of course, is to sell books. But in the end of the day, I believe that books changes lives. And I think that we are, as I said earlier, at an all-time low when it comes to empathy. Uh, that's extraordinary concerning. And if we do not recover that now, we are seeing more problems as what we've just seen in DC and elsewhere in organizations. So my hope is most at all that you will spread the word and let's recover common sense. And with that, of course, empathy. I love that. I love that. So, so okay. So a couple things, if you're listening or watching this, share this so that we'll spread the word on that. We'll also have links to where you can buy the book for yourself. And we'll have a link to where you can secretly buy that book for your boss. <laughs> as well. I love I that. I won't tell anyone. I promise. <laughs> if you, if you like this episode, make sure you leave a like, make sure you, you share. If you're listening to this as a podcast, do us a favor, double tap the cover art and leave us a review as well. It really does help get the word out about this show and also about Martin's work. In the meantime, Martin, it was so great to uh, to present you to, to my audience and this community of people who are dedicated to making work suck just a little bit less and having more common sense at work as a part of that. So Martin, thank you so much for being a part of David Burkus Presents. Thank you, David. I can only say the same. You are my brother. Why? Because you could just as well have written this book as I did. I decided to, to go that path. And I can tell you the next point two zero of my book is going to be your next book. They're very, very aligned <laughs> to tell you. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And while you're there, leave a rating and review because it helps share these messages with many, many or people. And if you really liked it and you want to go deeper, then check out the amazing resources we have for you at davidberkuscom slash resources. Guaranteed there's something in there that'll help you or your team do your best work ever.